All right, everyone, back with Santiago. Santiago, I think this is our uh, this is our last weekly roundup, or second to last week, weekly roundup. I know. I, I feel like we've this has been going on for much longer, uh, but incredibly excited to round up the year and into next year. I think these have been very, very fun in a short period of time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I think uh, I don't. I don't. I know we've come a very long way in a short period of time. You and me, Santiago. I'm feeling like we've got a, a good little thing brewing here. I think so. Hopefully people like it. If they don't like it, they could always be very vocal on Twitter. And we'll, we'll, we're listening. We're paying attention. So, you know, if you don't like anything, you know, just raise your hand. And we'll Though I guess if no one liked it, no, that means no one would be listening, which means we okay. would actually yeah. never know about it. So we could be sitting in like 2025 and just no one's listening to this damn thing. But anyways, yeah. well, I mean, well, you know, that's a good I still point, enjoy I chatting. <laughs> yeah, we just rip on it. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys, we've got four narratives that we're talking about this week. Um, we're going, to, we're going to try to do a better job of kind of batching the episode into basically narratives, then news, then the tweets. First section, narratives, four narratives. Number one, Jack Dorsey really fell off the rocker this week, talking through kind of his comments on Twitter, uh, going after A16Z, the VCs, the entire Web3 space. Uh, the second thing is uh, an interesting thing that's popping up in a lot of conversations, at least for me. I'm not sure if Santiago's seeing this, but DAOs are starting to win deals. Uh, and by win deals, I mean they are out competing VCs to get on cap tables. Really interesting trend that's just starting. Uh, the third thing is permission DeFi. Uh, is it the next enterprise blockchain or is it going to be a really, really big trend in 2022? We'll be talking about permission DeFi. Uh, and then the fourth thing, crypto social media. Um, it kind of triggers me because 2017 was, uh, I feel like this was such a buzzwordy thing and it completely fell off a map and everyone's like crypto social media makes absolutely no sense. I disagree with that. We'll get into some of those thoughts and there are some big things happening on that front. Then we'll get into the news, then into the tweets. Then I have a movie or a TV show recommendation, which I'm excited about. So we always need a TV and movie recommendation, especially this time of year. So yeah, exactly. Uh, I've, completely lost myself in this one show anyways first things first jack dorsey tweets out you don't own web3 the vcs and the lps do it will never escape their incentives it's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label know what you're getting into all right that was december 20th 11 p.m kind of late at night maybe he had a couple drinks at that point second tweet the vcs are the problem not the people third tweet Jack, we invest in software eating the world, coming after A16Z with a screenshot of Andreessen. What do you make of this? What, what's going on with Jack right now? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think um, I tweeted about this, which is, you know, I think people need to understand the influence that they have. And, you know, we're talking about it. So Jack has a lot of influence, the same way that Musk has influence. It's always been perplexing to me how someone like Jack doesn't understand and just stops Bitcoin. Um, and... It's just been difficult to understand from my perspective, which is why, why would you be critical of Ethereum or other stuff? You know, it's sort of like there's a double standard here, right? Because I think Jack sold one of his one of his first tweets as an NFT, which is using Ethereum for like 2.9 or 2.6 million. So so it's you when someone is throwing stones at something else, you have to understand, well, wait a minute, you, you can't live in this dual like in this dualism of criticizing something you're using. And so. I don't understand it. Um, candidly, I think that it is, first of all, not true um, in the sense that Web3 is not owned by VCs. You know, my, my thinking is if he were to start Twitter today, he could have credibly started it without raising much, you know, without going directly to VCs. First of all, there's nothing wrong with VCs. So this is anti-VC sentiment, which is how, is how is a VC any different than a community member? 
In fact, I would argue some VCs are no different. So we should just remove this classification of what is a VC and what is not a VC. I mean, ultimately, everyone is a community member. And so that is always, first of all, if you're not a community member, you're going to be called on that bullshit. And so Jack, I think, is just very out of tune in, in how these communities are operated. And look, there's always ownership by individuals and investors, and they provide value, some more than others. But I think it's it's very off base to say that Web3 is owned by a particular investor. So that's just blatantly wrong. And so I think uh, it needs to be called out as such. Yeah, I think it's important. Balaji had this interesting response to him. It's important to remember that Twitter, of all of the social media platforms out there, Twitter was the most free social media platform, the least like uh, dedicated to kind of one or like run by one uh, political party in the States, right? It felt very free. And it even started almost more like a protocol and more like a more like a protocol than like a centralized platform, right? Like mm-hmm. you, they were really good about allowing third-party devs to build on the platform. And then slowly, by, you know, slowly but surely, that all got wiped away, right? They started, per, they started ripping third-party developers' accounts. Uh, they started to choke off uh, the access to the social media, uh, to the social network through, uh, if you remember, like Meerkat when they were competing mm-hmm. with Periscope. Uh, they started to just basically kill the API. And then what's mm-hmm. happened is uh, they've started purging different accounts. Yeah. That's an interesting... Uh, that's an interesting kind of framework is that Twitter started as this protocol. Jack obviously understands what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I mean, so. I think uh, uh, the, other, the other thing I want to add is I tweeted about this and it says, alluding to Jack specifically, it says, success doesn't make you an expert overnight. So, st- you know, stop pontificating and opining on fields you know little about. I mean, it's clear that Jack hasn't done his research because anyone that has actually tried and delved deep into Web3 would understand that, you know, would not, wouldn't make those statements. Um, and so, you know, I always like to remind people, you, you have to be, you know, you have to be skeptical of these like experts. They might've been very successful in a different state of the world. They might've been successful, like in their own respective web two or, or other fields, but there's no shortage of people that come into this space and come into crypto and have this sort of this knee jerk reaction and feel like they can opine and pontificate when the reality is all, all you need to do is whenever you're entering a new field and arena, just take the time to learn it, take the time to understand it and talk to people. And it's clear to me that given his remarks, it's clear to me that that it's, it's unclear to me that he's spent meaningful amount of time educating himself about Web3. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is what my co-founder, Mike, this is this is what Mike always talks about, which is he's like, you look at all these uh, crypto is this way of drawing out people who are experts in one thing and they start opining on something else. I guess it's not really just crypto. It's really anything, right? There's a lot of people who make a ton of money or uh, become very powerful or just in general have a lot of success in one specific industry and they start opining on other things, right? right? Absolutely. And you might be a really, really, really amazing uh, developer or tech builder, uh, but as soon as you start talking about macro, right, which is kind of happening here, uh, you just get so fixated, you don't really understand actually what's going on. In the same way that someone like a macro thinker, some of the best macro thinkers are typically five years, 10 years late to tech trends mm-hmm. because they're macro totally. thinkers, right? They're not tech yeah. investors. Yeah. I mean, so. th- this is what makes me incredibly bullish about crypto, which is we go back to this idea that we're so early. And the fact that to me, when I see all kinds of experts from Taleb to Peter Schiff to Elon, Jack, and sort of, quote, unquote, even Ray Dalio for a long time, critical of, of Bitcoin, of crypto, and so many other people that have been very successful in a different, like Warren Buffett, uh, Charlie Munger. I mean, these are one of the more celebrated, successful people by a lot of standards. 
in their respective fields. But the fact that like crypto has like everyone feels like this knee-jerk reaction to have an opinion on crypto. And in my life, I've just learned you it's better to delay judgment on things if you can. I think the luxury of being successful in and having a certain amount of wealth, if you will, is that you can take the time. Just take time. And I think Jeff Bezos when it said that, like he he said, money has allowed me to take time and defer judgment. And and I think I really believe in that sort of philosophy, which is why would you? Because it's clear that a lot of these people are pontificating and criticizing crypto and being skeptical. It's fine to be skeptical. We should always be skeptical. The problem is it is very clear when someone is being skeptical and hasn't tried this technology because we've come a long way from 2017. We've come a long way in a year. And so, you know, Web3 is very, it is more decentralized than Web2. Um, and I think increasingly Twitter and a lot of these platforms will wake up to this idea that if they're, they're just not going to be competitive against Web2. And so, you know, whether he wants to believe it or accept it, it's just a matter of time. I think Jack hating on the VCs is not the story here. It's the least interesting thing, actually. The real yeah. story here is there's this sentiment that's forming, right? There's a pushback in general right now to Web3s and NFTs. The arguments are always different, right? Like the Ubisoft community said it was just another way to, you know, for Ubisoft to milk the community, um, right? They had that U the Ubisoft posted the, the YouTube video and it got downvoted to hell. Uh, it was like 5% of users liked it, 95 disliked it. Um, gamers say it'll ruin games. Others say it's bad for the environment. Discord, the same thing, got absolutely shredded. Jack says VCs are bad. All of these pushbacks are so freaking emotional, right? The framework is, this is just, we're, what we're seeing is these are just disruptive technologies and there's always, there's always a pushback to it. And it doesn't really matter what the pushback is uh, because there's always, people are just grasping at straws here. And so like Bitcoin, but what's happening with Web3, Bitcoin was disruptive at first. Bitcoin got a lot of crap and people didn't like it. But eventually what's happening now is like, it's disruptive to Jerome Powell and Jamie Dimon and everyone can kind of get on board with that. It's like, yeah, screw the bankers, right? It's like, everyone's like, yeah, I hate my experience with Bank of America, right? And then what happens is Web3 comes along. And mm -hmm. now Web3 says, uh, we're going to disrupt Web2. But the issue is that Web2 has a broad base of consumers that say, like for me, I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I actually like Web2. And there's a lot of people who say, whoa, wait, wait, I like Web2. Yeah, I hate my bank. I, don't, I, I hate the Fed. I like mm -hmm. Web2. And so mm -hmm. Jack Dorsey is a web two guy. And so I mm -hmm. think these are, there's a consumers that actually like web two, but B mm -hmm. there are these builders like Jack Dorsey. I know he's really smart, but there are narratives that he had to learn to build a really successful web two company, centralization, efficiency, right? These are mm -hmm. fundamental truths that he has to unwind in order to actually understand web three easier said than done. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I think uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we're getting all this pushback and hate. Like this is this is what a disruptive technology looks like. And and so, you know, to me, that's just inherent that indicative that we're early. Um, and if, if this were a marginal piece of technology, meaning Web 2, uh, sorry, Web 3 and what it provides, it wouldn't be getting all this criticism. So, you know. I think it's normal. It's expected. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, it's just a little underwhelming to see someone that has that amount of impact and influence, you know, just, you know, really go off the rails. And it's a reminder for all of us. I mean, we kind of see this within crypto as well. You know, we have this maximalism camps that, that are very rigid and their thinking is ossified. And so, I mean, I just think that generally you always need to keep an open mind. Intellectual curiosity is what brought you to crypto is probably what led Jack to 
you know, have this breakthrough to develop Twitter early on and, and, and no one believed it early on. And so, you know, I think it's, it's difficult, right? When you have all the success, you know, I think you, you, you inherently think that you're an expert on everything. And, and it's, 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 it's a, a good reminder for all of us to always keep an open mind and, and maintain that level of intellectual curiosity, because otherwise, you know, I, my, my thesis for a long time has been, you know, these sequential waves of technology and disruption are happening much faster and they're compressing because you have information moves much faster with the internet. Capital is moving much faster with web two, sorry, with web three, right? You can now move capital to speed of information, combine the two and then, and then, and it's an open source environment. And so the three combinations sort of like explosive, right? And so, and so I think like the minute you, you shut yourself out and you stop learning and you stop introducing the possibility of adopting new technology, you're going to get wiped out much faster. And it's not going to be in 10 years. It's probably going to be in five years and, if, and probably go less than that. Right. And so, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm upset with us, Santiago, for spending so much time on this. Let's move past uh, Jack Dorsey. Number two, yeah. second narrative, DAOs are winning deals against VCs. Here's what I mean by this. There's in 2017 and 2018, the VCs that won the deals were the VCs with capital. The reason being there wasn't much capital, right? There, were, there weren't that many people who were willing to invest in crypto, right? There were some VC firms and uh, you guys launched Parify and I think it was like 2018 and like some, mm-hmm. some, some VCs put in money, but really you just needed money to get into these mm-hmm. deals because uh, that's, I don't know, that's really all you needed. Then in 2019, as DeFi started picking, or it was really part of the bear market, but like DeFi started to uh, kind of pick up a little bit into 2020, 2019, 2020, you needed liquidity, right? So now mm-hmm. for the first time ever, those VCs who didn't have a way to provide liquidity were not actually winning the deals. It was the VCs with, uh, who had like trading arms, right? Who could provide liquidity, make markets around mm-hmm. the tokens. That trend is now coming to an end where everyone has access to liquidity. Everyone can provide liquidity. In 2021 and 2022, the VCs with distribution started winning deals. And that's really interesting because it's, uh, you know, the folks who can actually bring users and things like that. What's even more interesting than that, though, but that's kind of that that's nothing new, right? Andreessen Horowitz 15 years ago said we're 10 years ago said we're going to help our port codes with uh, with marketing and sales and kind of all access to uh, to help them with, with, with kind of every different arm of the business. That's not that interesting. What's interesting is that now, so we went from capital to liquidity to help with distribution. Now DAOs, DAOs mm-hmm. are out competing VCs because they don't, they can, it's not just helping with marketing slash distribution. Mm-hmm. It's helping with community, right? Yeah. So like the, the cap table now that I'm seeing a lot of times, and I really want to get your take on this is you've got a VC who leads. Oftentimes the VC actually has developer and engineering talent so that they can help them create the network. They can do tokenomics, things like that. So VC with a, with an engineering team and like devs lead the round, then like one or two VCs, three VCs with liquidity pile in, right? This is why I like jump and Alameda are winning deals because they have access to liquidity. Then you've got a lot of angels who can help with like marketing and growth and maybe if like partnerships and things like that. And then you're starting to see, yeah, that's Santiago. Shout out Santiago. <laughs> and, uh, and, and now you're seeing, uh, DAOs for the first time ever. I'm seeing them on the on mm. these cap tables because yeah. they can actually give them 2,000, 5,000 users right out of the gate. Absolutely. What are your What are your thoughts on this? Are you seeing this? Absolutely. I, I think the last ten deals I've done, um, and I'm quite active. All of them have had a DAO, and, and look, a lot of them wow. are in gaming. And so you've had guilds uh, that are structured as DAOs participate. 
um, and or NFT infrastructure, you have like, you know, something like a pleaser DAO, for instance. Um, and yeah, like it, it is, um, you know, I think, I think we were alluding to, which I would agree with is DAOs are organ, you know, organizations, uh, of individuals that have capital and have talent and have resources to, to support other projects. Right. And so, um, it's almost like I would liken it to like a corporate VC in many ways. Like a lot of these DAOs have a specific purpose, whether they're a guild or a game or, you know, they're a protocol ecosystem fund, and maybe you count that as a DAO. And so, uh, you know, you see this in healthcare and other industries where corporate VCs are very active. And I think, I think that trend is permeating into crypto and to Web3 as, and manifested as a DAO. Um, and so you're right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, these rounds are not necessarily getting larger, but uh, in, in the decision process that I talked to a founder, you know, he sends me a list of like, you know, all the 20 people that he's talking to. And invariably, we always carve out room for DAOs. And sometimes I don't think they've been leading rounds yet. Um, but they are among the larger check sizes, increasingly so. Uh, and so that's something yeah. uh, that is pretty interesting, at least from anecdotally from my perspective, I've seen. Yeah, DAOs are the new institutions. This this really fits into that trend. What uh, I'm curious, what DAOs, like what are the actual DAOs that are participating? Like is it that is it these big DeFi DAOs that have like 5 billion? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what Uniswap has now, like two, three, five, ten billion in their treasury. Like, or yeah. is it the DeFi companies that really took off in 2020? Is it just the gaming guilds? Like, who are the DAOs? It's been mostly in gaming that I've observed, uh, specifically yeah. guilds. Um, but, and I haven't seen that many DeFi DAOs really make investments. Certainly DeFi founders, but not DAOs. Um, it's been mostly, uh, mostly, mostly in gaming. Yeah. And, okay, so gaming guild invests in the company. Now, mm-hmm. So what, what actually happens there? The thesis is that the gaming guild has maybe, I don't know, a couple thousand mm-hmm. people in the guild. And so then yeah. the game that they invested in, all those, pl- yeah, that's like exactly. free 3,000 gamers it's, to come it, in. Exactly. It's a customer acquisition it. strategy. Yeah. It, it's a customer acquisition strategy. Yeah. Especially like in the games that I've Community acquisition. Yeah. Community acquisition, user acquisition. Yeah. Very yeah. efficiently. Right. Um, so, yeah. Really, really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder though, almost if it gives the guilds too much power. Right. If a guild gets to be too large and like too like if they own almost all the users and they own like the tokens, you can mm-hmm. quickly see a world where the guild starts manipulating. Actually, I mean, they probably wouldn't do this because of the game theory behind it. But like they mm-hmm. could hypothetically uh, change some of the economics of the game, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it, the the this is the topic for another discussion. We're going to have Gabby from YGG. We're going to have Felix from Sal Adventures, which is another guild. Um, and, and we're going to have other, you know, games like Kieran from Luvium and, and a few others come on. And, and I think this is something we should definitely ask these guys, like how are guilds structuring and working with games and what kind of influence they're having? Because it's a fine line, right? Sometimes it can exert a lot of influence when, if you're a dominant guild, like YGG, for instance, is like the largest guild right now. And so they, they have a considerable voting power, um, on Axie, for instance, because, you know, they, they, a lot of the users from Axie are coming from YGG. And so... They are sort of like these, call it, they could be activist token holders because, you know, and it's, they could propose certain things and it's going to be interesting how this governance landscape evolves and, and guilds become active um, in, in these games and, and influencing uh, governance level decision yep. making. Definitely a trend to follow. Um, permission DeFi, trend number three. Um so permission DeFi, I'm torn on it, and I just need your take. Uh, on one hand, it's enterprise blockchain, and on one hand, I feel like such a schmuck 
uh, getting excited about enter, about this permission DeFi thing. And, uh, and and by the way, for context, permission DeFi is KYC AML'd decentralized apps, right? So a couple examples, like SolRise is, I think, uh, one of the first DEXs that is a KYC DEX. SolRise launched SolRise DEX Pro. Uh, comp, some, some of the more uh, noticeable ones that you guys would recognize, like Aave. Aave launched Aave Arc, right? It's a KYC AML'd whitelisted um, institutional offering by Aave. Uh, they just onboarded uh, Seba, S-E-B-A, Big Swiss Bank, right? And so Seba, if approved, like Seba will be able to onboard users and grant permissions for the wallets to participate in Arc protocol transactions. Uh, and the firm, because it's this permission DeFi, they can require... KYC AML check on all of the ARC users. So, you know, Compound launched Compound Treasury, right? So on one hand, on one hand, I'm like, it's not really DeFi if it's this KYC AML stuff. On the other hand, uh, I get it, right? Because the main thing to understand is that a lot of the investors have mandates that, especially traditional investors, like these banks have mandates that they literally cannot allocate capital to non-KYC AML pools and platforms. Mm -hmm especially DeFi platforms. So the DeFi platforms, uh, like one inch raised 175 million bucks. They said they want to reach institutions. So they're going to launch this permission DeFi thing on one inch, right? Mm -hmm. Because they need to access those pools of capital that literally cannot allocate to non KYC AML pools. What do you make of permission DeFi? What are your thoughts here, Santiago? I'm actually quite bullish on it. Um, because I've always felt that, you know, in order for DeFi, like what is, what is the, what is the ultimate goal here, right? The ultimate goal is to really disrupt finance and for DeFi to power a lot of the financial functions. Uh, this is just a new operating standard. Uh, banks, I think, like it increasingly. Um, you know, there's really not a lot of hesitation and pushback here. Like, even banks are really motivated to adopt DeFi, right? We talked about in the episode of Stani, which is why, why would a bank be interested in DeFi? Well, because the, the number one department that keeps growing is operations and compliance. And and what does a transparent blockchain do? Well, it removes a lot of friction, right? And so they are able to cut costs. And so really good technologies have this function where they, rem they, they increase a lot of, you're either cutting costs or increasing like a lot of, you're providing a lot of value. DeFi is doing both, right? There are certain subset of users that don't have access to financial services. DeFi allows that. Anyone that has an internet connection can come and get access to this entire ecosystem and invest in stuff and you know create a savings account and all this stuff. Banks are also motivated to do that. Process like mortgages. Think about the entire mortgage operation. You've been through it, I think, recently. It is just a, an entire clusterfuck of things. And it's a huge, huge, huge cost driver for banks. But the problem has always been, well, when you're interacting this open permissionless environment, you kind of need to know who your counterparty is. And there is a subset of users in DeFi that really value that. And as you said, it is institutions. Now, you could, be, you could push back here and say, wait a minute, DeFi is a closed system. If in order for you to enter DeFi, you need to somehow at some point provide KYC and ML, right? Think about getting ETH into DeFi. Getting funds into DeFi requires you to go through an on-ramp. That on-ramp should be doing the proper checks. So I, I understand that, but it's not enough for certain users, right? And so the important distinction that I want to make is this this is is yes, it is it's sort of like you're still operating using the Ethereum blockchain, which is that is the important thing to recognize. Or Solana, for instance. Like the settlement happens at the base layer or an L2. And 
that relies on obviously the security guarantees of open permission blockchains. This is not like a Hyperledger or an L3 or Corda or all this other random stuff that over the years has been tried and shelved. Um, you're just simply saying, I'm going to create a ring-fenced environment that anyone that comes in here, we know who they are. But you're still, but you're still not trusting each other. You just know who they are. You're trusting the sediment in the blockchain. And so I, I don't know. I, I want to make that distinction very, very clear because. You know, one of the one of the benefits here might be if you're using Aave today, you know, the beauty of it is there's a smart contract that executes a certain logic that if you if your collateral is X, you can borrow Y. And if, you know, your margin, if your health ratio falls below Z, then you get liquidated by these keepers. So that is beautiful because you always understand how the system works. And compared to a bank that you don't have the transparency. Now, Aave Arc, all is saying is, yeah, we're going to still use that function, but there's going to be a subset of players here that know each other and they're borrowing and lending against each other using all the benefits that I described earlier. And so nothing really changes from my perspective. All it really does is you just know who you're interacting with in that pool. And that's fine because JP Morgan might just want to interact with Wells Fargo or might just want to interact with uh, TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or Goldman Sachs or, or whoever, right? Um, as opposed to potentially some that they might, it might be problematic, right? And so I think this is a huge improvement towards getting DeFi in, embedded in, in used by banks because they will use it. We're not going to destroy banks as we know them. Banks will just use this as an operating standard. So I, I, I don't know if that's clear, Jason, but I, I, I think you, you let me know, but I, uh, that's how I do it. Yeah, I, I think that's clear, and I see it the same way. I mean, but I want to kind of extend this out into the future. Like, let's... um. Let's, so we've got this amazing episode next week coming out with uh, Antonio, right? Founder of DYDX next week. Really, really excited. Everyone should go listen to that next week when it drops. Uh, DYDX has become largest, second largest decentralized exchange. Um, mm-hmm. Goal is to become the largest crypto exchange in the world. Uh, let's say DYDX launches a, a permissioned options, a permission options DeFi pool, I guess you could call it. Now you're basically going to have two different pools of liquidity. You're going to have a permission to pool of liquidity and a mm-hmm. non-permission and like the normal non-KYC AML pool of liquidity. Yep. I can tell you who's going to use which ones, right? The institutions are going to use the KYC AML liquidity pool, the permissioned mm-hmm. liquidity pool, and the non-KYC AML folks are going to be the retail people, right? I'm, I'm not sure about that, actually. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. We know this. Look, DeFi is really inefficient. <clears throat> It, it has some really beautiful properties that make up for lack of efficiency. Um, you know, under collateralized loans or this idea that you immediately get liquidated. Well, sometimes it's nice to get a call and have 48 hours to refill your collateral as opposed to having an Oracle fail on you and you get liquidated, you know, like Black Friday. So there are certain, look, at the end of the day, I, I as a retail user, well, ultimately, like, we, we always come back to this idea of, like, people seem to have a knee-jerk reaction when we talk about KYC and AML. Here's the thing, folks. You've already KYC and AML at some point. So what's the whole goddamn problem? Like, I, this is sort of a very vocal minority that is not practical, anarchic, and, and, and not representative of the whole. Like, ultimately, Jason, if you get a lower rate on Ave Arc because you are willing to KYC and AML, like, if you can get a better rate, you can get a better product because there's more liquidity there where you can get your mortgage on chain 
Would you not KYC AML? Yeah, I would. Exactly. At the end of the day, you care about the bottom line, which is you're saving on the rate, you're getting better terms. There is sort of, you know, I, I think ultimately that's going to be the 90 plus percent of users, retail and institutions, it's just say more, most of the liquidity would be in permission pools, i.e. KYC, AML pools. And because of that, you're going to have better rates, more fluidity, and more options and value-added services in these permission pools. You're already KYCing AML into your exchange that you're using an on-ramp, so I don't know what the problem is. Like, I'm just going to say it like that because anyone that's critical of that, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I am hoping that the outcome of this is that this is all a Trojan horse for admitting that KYC AML is a fundamentally broken system, that it does no good. Uh, I and mean, for, yeah, like, like we, we can talk about ways you can KYC AML is probably a better discussion for another time. Like you can do zero knowledge proofs. Okay. They're super computationally inefficient, but like there are ways to KYC AML that doesn't feel like a colonoscopy. I'm just, I'm, I'm even saying like, what is the point of KYC AML right now? Like if you look at, so there are these leaked FinCEN documents that came out really mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, it basically, they basically show that these large banks, every single one of them flags trillions of dollars of suspicious transactions every year, but continues to do business with the customers. Right. And so it's like, uh, if you think about what KYC AML is really doing, it's kind of just shutting out billions of people from the financial system who we deem to be potentially risky. Right. So anyways, mm -hmm. That's a conversation for another time. Permission DeFi, we're paying attention to it. I think you should too. Um, fourth narrative, then we'll get into the news. Crypto social media making a comeback. Here's why I'm interested in this. Um, I am in the 2017 crypto wave. I know you're much earlier than I was. I came up hearing about all these dreams of crypto social media and even you know supply chain on the blockchain and corporate enterprise blockchains and uh, decentralized Uber and like all, all this basically for lack of a better word, crap, right. That never really panned out. Um, and you know, it's actually funny. I think, uh, I think the 2017 crowd sometimes misses, uh, things in, in crypto because we're so scarred by all of these narratives of 2017. Uh, mm -hmm. like I think 2017 people are actually missing gaming or are, are slower to get into crypto gaming than people who are either earlier or later than us because we're just so scarred by it. So scarred by all of these projects failing that, that popped up in 2017. And I think crypto social media is a really prime example of that. Mm -hmm. um, there were all these crypto social media projects. Like uh, if you remember EOS launched voice, I think it was, they bought the domain yeah. name from actually Michael Saylor himself for like 30 million bucks. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's all these projects saying like, we want to decentralize Twitter, decentralize Facebook, decentralize Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, decentralized social media actually makes a lot of sense though, right? People think about uh, like Bitcoin and crypto. Bitcoin's really on this collision course with macro and it kind of sits at, and you're, and you're seeing it now, like Bitcoin became really popular because the Fed started printing all this money, uh, inflation, all that kind of stuff ties really well into the Bitcoin narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, Web3 expands crypto outside of just monetary things, right? It makes it more about uh, things in technology, uh, which mm -hmm. kind of ties back into that Jack Dorsey conversation. And so one thing that I'm thinking about is like every time the Fed does something uh, or every time there's a macro thing that is kind of out of whack, it's a, it props up Bitcoin. And you're starting to see signs 
for Web3 in the same way that there are signs for Bitcoin. Bitcoin sign equals Fed printing trillions of dollars. Web3 sign equals Twitter deplatforming people. Mm-hmm. You're now starting to see people like Stani, who I think is one of the brightest minds in crypto over at Aave, talking about building a decentralized Twitter. Uh, and the news I want to talk about is Polygon and uh, uh, 776, uh, uh, Alexis Ohanian's ve- uh, venture studio, just launched a $200 million social media Web3 initiative. So mm-hmm. rambling question here, Santiago, but like my question for you is how do you assess whether or not like we're ready for social, like things like crypto social media? Look, it's a good question, right? Um, I think in 2017, you just weren't ready from an infrastructure perspective. Uh, you know, things needed to be built out um, to have and to support what is a more, you know, computationally intensive use case like social. Um but I'll tell you why I think I'm excited about it. One, I think you increasingly, I think NFTs are telling you people are very excited about the idea of your wallet and, and the portability of that. You know, you use your wallet and you interact and you pop into all these different services, but you are in control of your data and in control of um, and, and easily port in and out of solutions. And I think, you know, you pair that with sort of at this intersection of there's a degrading trust in institutions, including, including, you know, things like Facebook and, and, and Twitter. Um, and as you point out, you know, I think I, I can't remember the last time I was on Facebook, you know, Instagram's kind of okay. Um, but you know, I think increasingly NFTs are very, here's what I'll say. The act of collecting and NFTs is a social sport. And that again is a Trojan horse to social media, right? Cause you have the attention and, and people are going to increasingly say, wait a minute, I'm spending all this time in the in web three. On the, you know, using a blockchain service, collecting NFTs. I want to showcase them. So you have stuff like gallery and hype and, and a few, and you know, even your wallet, some wallets like Zapper and Rainbow are displaying your NFTs. Isn't that just so- social media as it is? I mean, that, that's sort of like we're already there. You just need to turn the lights on because, you know, most people increasingly are coming to this space with an eye towards collecting, which is a social sport with an eye towards gaming, which is social, it's interactive. And so all you need to do is, I think if you, if you invert and look at it like that, that's why social is going to work. Um, and, 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 you know, I think we're due for a, a new type of platform where users are in control. And, you know, I've thought about this increasingly is, and I'll say it to Jack, it's how much value the value in social networks come from the users, contributors. You and I tweet, we have a presence. You know, we add value to Twitter. If you're an early in Twitter, in, in the network, this idea of a network effect, that you go on the platform, you invite your friends, the incremental user that comes into Facebook and Twitter, <clears throat> and because your friends are there, and that social graph and connectivity adds a lot of value to these networks. Yeah. The problem has been they don't provide and give out any value to contributors. And so it's sort of that that's a real paradigm shift here, which is people are now waking up to this idea that they can get tokens. They can be rewarded by being early adopters, by being contributors. And once you see that, and once you tell your friends that you're earning tokens and you're part owner in these networks, that you're an early adopter or you're a core contributor or an influencer or whatever, you're not going back to web two. And so look, some, the, the, the last thing I'll say is, are we ready? Like, can these blockchains credibly support that? Yeah, I think it can. 
You, know, you have yeah. side chains, you have L2s, and you have other blockchains, more higher throughput, perhaps less secure like Solana, that can support this. Yeah. Yeah. I think um I think it's uh there's this Naval quote that he said on the on the Tim Ferriss episode with with Chris Dixon. I feel like such a douche uh quoting Naval right now, but denying and pushing back against crypto is basically saying we're not going to have a collectively owned future. We're going to have a corporate owned future. Uh, and we're going to have a government-owned future. And I, I don't know, it just reminds me of that. Like, why would you not get excited about something like a, you know, we're, we're posting every single day on Twitter. We're, we're, we're creating value for the network. We get nothing in return except for some uh, silly little likes. So so I'll just say this. I, I, just, I just invested in this thing that I'm super excited about. In my portfolio, I don't have a lot of exposure to Africa. And, and these guys are just going to build the totally leapfrog i think technology can you, tell us, can you give us some alpha here santero can you tell I'm, us who I'm, it is? I'm, 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 they're, they're coming on the pod next year and right. so here's the thing right it, places like you look at china and how china developed finance it totally leapfrogged brick and mortar institutions people don't the relate you know wechat which is a social app became your de facto financial institution or alipay which was you know e-commerce why? Because that's where you spend your time. That's where you want the service. So WeChat has become the everything app that does pretty much from social, but you're spending all the time chatting. And so then it just builds on top of that, a periphery of services. A place like Africa has going to leapfrog that and then go directly to Web3 because people are realizing that, hey, wait a minute, I can come in here. There's a whole set of incentives and values and sorry, and services that I can get. And the same with the play to earn has been explosive, especially in places like the Philippines and Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Like Africa is primed for that. And and when you combine a wallet that can do finances, that can provide working capital, that can provide loans and 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 provide messaging, like it's sort of game over, right? And 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 I think I'm really excited for that because I've always felt the crypto <laughs> develop, developing countries are sort of the best testing ground for some of these things and truly understand if, if there's underlying demand for these things or if people just don't care about decentralization. Don't I don't think they do. I think at, at the end of the day, they care about services that they're not getting. And I've always been hyper bullish like on, on stuff like DeFi and gaming. I see them as one because ultimately just creates new labor structures it creates new opportunities and access to financial services and others that you just don't have and yeah it's clear the governments are not going to build it it's clear corporations might not have the incentive but this is just okay the last point i'll say is we're we're talking to antonio look at uniswap look at these protocols they have teams of 20 people 50 people maybe 100 people and they're already surpassing centralized institutions this is the thing when you operate in this world of of permissionless open source blockchains code is infinitely more scalable and ex like when you execute logic you program money you don't require a hundred people in compliance thousand people in compliance or administrative functions to check and cross and do all this nonsense and garbage you know you basically are programming if then logic with money and other stuff and that that is inherently infinitely more scalable and it allows and makes a viable economic model to go out and say yeah we're going to bank these people because instead of you building brick and mortars across a very difficult geography like India or in some of these places that are very remote, wait a minute, you already have, you know, stuff like Helium is providing internet graph, which was tried for a long time and now is working because you layer on top of that crypto economics and all of a sudden it makes it interesting for people to host 
this device that provides connectivity to other people and you earn tokens in return. And so just this is another example uh, of, of things that were not economically viable in Web 2 all of a sudden become economically viable in Web 3. Because if they're not economically viable, no one is acting in their best interest here. Ultimately, there is profit to be made and there are you know, incentives. And this is why this space is quite powerful because it works um, on the basis that you don't trust anyone and that everyone's acting their, in their own interest. And so you know, these, these protocols are very, very profitable and scalable. And so keep an eye out for, for, for that. And I think you know, it, it is an important point that you, 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 you touch on, Jason, which is for a lot of us that have been around in the space for quite a bit of time, perhaps we're the most skeptical of how big and different use cases that can, that can actually be serviced uh, with Web3. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's get into uh, some of the news. A um, couple of big news, sec- uh, news things. First one is really interesting. It didn't get as much attention as I thought it would. Uniswap delegates consider liquidity mining to kickstart Ethereum L2 adoption. Really what happen- uh, what's happening here is Uniswap is trying to push through a proposal t- uh, to incentivize users to drive liquidity to things like Polygon, right? Transactions, this drives transactions down from uh, like, I don't know, 20 bucks, 10 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks a transaction yeah. to, yeah, 38, but who's counting? Down to like one penny, right? And so yeah. to me, this feels like money Legos falling into place. But it's mm-hmm. really interesting because we're talking about I mean, again, we had that conversation with Antonio from DYDX. Don't mean to bring it up too much, but like we, he's actively thinking about, does it make sense to continue on Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense for them? Ethereum L1, yeah. Ethereum L1, yeah. And um, yeah, the, yeah, of course. And uh, I don't know, it's just interesting to see Uniswap, like for someone, for Uniswap, like this comes about because there's someone in their organization who raised a flag saying, when we run these liquidity mining things and when we spend a lot of money we're running a big campaign for ethereum let's run it for what's best for our users and they're not choosing ethereum they're choosing things like polygon so mm-hmm. i don't know what do you make yeah. of this well i mean I, to be fair polygon sort of like a, a side chain ethereum and you know i think they're moving in uh you know interesting like it is built on top of ethereum uh but yeah look it's, it's very refreshing to see i think there's a long for a long time we felt i felt that uniswap governance was sort of like botched and like nothing was going on uh, obviously, they deployed an optimism. Uh, there's sort of like an interesting relationship between optimism and uh, the set of investors in Uniswap, largest holders. And so it's felt like a long time that the Uniswap governance is just sort of like a pony show, uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think, uh, you know, this is really encouraging. At the end of the day, like Uniswap is still pound for pound, the number one DeFi protocol on Ethereum. And for them to go to, I think it's Polygon, right? Um, it is it is very encouraging because more users now get the benefit of, of using um, Uniswap and all its benefits uh, and Polygon. So faster, better, cheaper. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk more about this in our predictions episode next week, but one thing that I think will end up happening in 2022, early in 2022, like I'm talking Q1, is uh, a big dap ends up moving off of Ethereum onto something else, like a like another L1. And like Uniswap, in my mind, Uniswap I it's, it's just so associated with Ethereum in my mind. Like it's so, like, mm-hmm. you know, Hayden and Vitalik, very good friends, like just so associated with Ethereum. So it's interesting to see it develop like this. Yeah. All right. Next thing. Um, little bit of M&A going on in crypto right now. First things first, um, Rari Capital and Faye Protocol merged. What a good meme 
What a good meme. Ferrari. Oh, so good. Ferrari. Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I know we talked about this last time. I'm not sure if you did end up looking into this or if you want to save it for another conversa- mm-hmm. conversation. But, I mean, it's really interesting, this DeFi native M&A. Like, they're combining protocols uh, to basically operate using this one token tribe. Um, and, like, Rari's core product gains this dedicated stablecoin, Fey, while the Fey protocol becomes more useful in DeFi thanks to Rari's borrowing and lending pools. Really interesting. I think we'll see more of it. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I think I think this is just an early trend. Um, I, I I look at it as sort of like vertical integration, or call it horizontal. I, I guess you could argue it's either or, or it could be both. But yeah, again, you know, stable coins are a necessary component of of money markets. Uh, Rari has a money market, sort of siloed pools of liquidity, and so um, you know. Uh, I, I, it's going to be interesting how the community, I, I think there was pushback from a lot of certain community members. It's going to be interesting how that all shapes up. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of like an aqua hire. I think the Rari team is, uh, you know, really impressive young devs and, 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 and so is Joey and, and the rest of the, you know, the Faye t- team. So, um, yeah, um, I don't have much to comment in there other than, you know, great meme and, uh, we'll see how it <laughs> evolves and, and how the community, you know, takes it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly was voted in, so. You know, then we yep. already had to approve it. Yep. Uh, next interesting acquisition here is uh, this Kraken. Kraken acquisition of Staked. Uh, Kraken mm-hmm. acquired staking platform Staked, uh, the crypto exchange, to now offer its clients a non-custodial alternative to its existing capabilities. Staked enables investors and proof-of-stake networks to easily and securely compound their holdings. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really interesting reasons, I mean, this is this is Kraken's, I think, fifth acquisition of the year. Um you know, they've got, they trade like 90, di- 90 different cryptos, uh, 90 different digital assets. Uh, they've got almost 10 million users. Um, really interesting because staked is one of the highest, uh, like, liqu- uh, staking, staking pools out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Staking as a service pools. So I don't know. What do you, what do you make of this acquisition? Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I think, um, um, uh, well, two, two points, I guess, conflicting. One is, um, I don't have much insight, but I think the criticism here is so. So obviously, Kraken is a big, you know, has a lot of deposits from their users, and if and they're they're staking these tokens, you know, whether it's Cosmos or like these proof of stake networks or Ethereum, uh, to earn yield for the users. Um, the problem with that is, you know, there is a fair amount of centralization. Uh, when you look at like the largest staking contracts or organizations, if you will, Kraken is pretty high up there, and so is Coinbase and Binance. I, I guess the only one that's more of a decent, like decentralized native is Lido, uh, which is, I think, I think larger than Kraken, I guess. Um, so the question is, like, you know, Kraken is acquiring a lot of these staked assets that, you know, is interesting for their platform. But, you know, I, I do wonder exactly there. Alex said it, right? Um, you know, staked is a number three ETH2 depositor, and Kraken's already number two. Um has Kraken's two and, and five, the, right? Two and, yeah, yeah, Kraken's so, two and five. Lido's number one. Staked is number yeah. three. So now Kraken's got two, three, and five. Yeah, yeah uh, And exactly. Stakefish has that fourth spot. So yeah, so, I'm so, really coming at Lido here. Yeah, yeah and so I think it, it, it uh, just, you know, I don't want to sound the alarm or anything, but it is important to monitor the concentration of these uh, staking pools. Um, and you never want to have too much concentration. Um, and so, you know, ultimately I think it's good for their users There are more services, perhaps more networks that they can support. Staked runs a whole set of infrastructure and, and staking the service solutions for other networks that Kraken might not have, not just Ethereum. 
But, you know, we, we constantly need to be monitoring the concentration of these ETH2 deposit addresses um, and, you know, just make sure that there is healthy, comp- healthy diversity and, and um, decentralization. Right. Three trends to look at here. Uh, intensifying M&A activity. According to Kraken, this acquisition was one of the largest to date ever in crypto. Uh, mm-hmm. The amount was not actually disclosed, but, and, you know, the record holder right now is BitGo. Uh, getting acquired by Galaxy for $1.2 billion. But first trend is intensifying M&A activity. Uh, second is uh, staking services are actually profitable, right? Figment has about $7.5 billion of staked assets on its platform. Staked has a similar amount, like $7 billion on the platform. Figment is seeing over $10 million of revenue a month. Uh, and the cost for the staking sector remained pretty low still. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, staking services are profitable. Interesting interesting thing to uh to see develop and uh the third thing is just like the spreading normalization of yield opportunities via governance protocols um you know one of the barriers to greater use of staking services has been the uh, kind of complicated user experience the need to open new accounts token transfers uh, but the industry is growing despite that uh, i think uh stake put out this Put out this market report. Uh, the market cap of the top thirty staking assets reached six hundred billion at the end of Q three, which is up sixty five uh, for the previous quarter. And for the first time, proof of stake assets accounted for over thirty percent of the total market cap of the industry. So staked assets are growing. Um, mm-hmm. All right, jumping into the next topic here, we've got. <laughs> we won't spend too much time on this, but we I feel like we talk about this every time. Funding is still out of out of control. Uh, Blockworks' own Jackie Melanick had this great story: twenty twenty one crypto VC funding tops thirty billion dollars. Investments have increased nearly four hundred and fifty percent year over year. Twenty twenty one is not done yet. Figment closed a uh, speaking of staking. Figment closed a nice little round at one point four billion, up from its uh, previous valuation of five hundred million. And uh, yeah, I mean just. (laughs) <laughs> just just crazy i mean there's so much so much damn capital flowing into the space so i don't know we don't we don't have to spend too much time on this unless you yeah, want importantly to. i think uh, people are realizing proof of stake right a year ago proof of stake i remember running infrastructure services and it was it was dormant um but i think as ethereum closer and closer i mean there's all the east to deposit address but more networks just i mean we got to remember a lot of there's a lot of criticism about proof of stake being a viable solution um you know most people are like you know in the proof of work camp and so the fact that figment and staked got acquired there's been other funding for staking to the service firms it's very active specifically staking firms are pretty lucrative they spit out cash flow because as you know they're they're earning a percentage of the rewards and so as it's sort of an indirect bet and proxy for as if you think that staking it proves stake networks going to continue to grow um and more rewards you factor in the yield of two, three, four, five, ten percent, whatever, varying degrees of staking rewards. They they're earning a, a percentage of that. It's a very interesting business model. It's sort of like yeah. the 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 the, the, the uh, highways uh, or just a toll operator for these networks because you know running these you know it's it's clear that I mean, people are going to delegate and stake with a, a, a competent operator, and so super interesting. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Crazy chart for anyone watching on YouTube. Blockchain Mega Rounds. Mega Round is 100 million or more. It's up 1,400% year over year. Uh, really, I mean, that's a kind of funny percent to funny way to put that in a percentage term there. But there was one Mega Round and now there are 15 Mega Rounds uh, in right. Q3. So, all right. Let's cruise through this. Next thing, uh, some NFT news that's interesting this week. Uh, Adidas 
jumped into the metaverse. They uh, Adidas's first big NFT drop raked in twenty three and a half million in sales. Um, I think the the controversy controversy here. They dropped thirty thousand NFTs on Friday, brought in almost twenty five million, uh, but one buyer scooped up three hundred of these NFTs, despite the company's two per limit customer. This is not something new. This is something that we see in DeFi all the time. This is something that we see in NFT drops all the time. People creating a whole bunch of addresses. I don't think it's it that could have been easily shield. mitigated. By the way, I'm not super technical on it, but I looked at how it they they it went down. It could have been somewhat mitigated uh, with yeah. without trivial change in the code but you know it's still still positive i'm not being critical yeah. here i mean we, we live and we learn but you know yeah not cool seeing that yeah i think the more interesting conversation here i don't want to trigger you santiago but uh i will bring it up is you know these adidas drops are pretty intimately tied in with board apes the board yes, ape nfts flipped crypto punks's floor price and eth for yes, the first sir. time yeah. ever well, look, it's, you know, uh, it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I've owned Bored Apes. Um, I know the team. I think they they respect, I have a ton of respect for what they're doing. Uh, it's incredible. Like, you know, they, they, they built a lot of community and continue to add different services and partnerships. And look, that drives value. We talk about it. You know, this is, you know, I can't think of a, 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 a NFT project community that is adding this amount of value. And like, you know, there's like cool cats and a few others that are building like, you know, documentaries or, or like not documentaries, like games and, you know, um, and, and, and TV shows and all this stuff. It's great. I continue to think, you know, you know, there's, it's super positive and I'm happy to see it. Yeah. Um, a little bit of regulatory stuff going on here. Uh, Tara hit back at the SEC, um, claiming that, uh, Do Kwon and, and also Tara were not properly served by the sec and that as non-us residents they are not under the sec's jurisdiction um (laughs) love to see doquan just fighting back here uh he's a fighter he's (laughs) it's an understatement uh he is definitely a fighter um i think i mean we don't have to talk about this one too much i think it's just an interesting case in that like he's going at the sec right he's going on podcasts he went on coindesk the other day Mm -hmm. coindesk video and you know, he's fighting back, so we'll we'll see what happens here. Well, look, I mean, I think um, it, it, it could be pretty daunting. Um, I, I think my my belief is that we need to have more dialogue with regulators as opposed to just having the this sort of like lobbying subpoenas and then back and forth and like artillery fi- like you know rounds. It's just sort of like let's have open discussions, have a forum yeah. to talk about it. There is one. There is open sandbox and open invitations to do this, but it can be daunting, right? When you, you know, you were left wondering, like, am I going into the lion's den here and like, you know, exposing myself? But you know, I think more and more, hopefully, hopefully, we can develop more connectivity and dialogue with regulators because ultimately, we, we, I think, mo- the representative message that the community here has is we just want to have open dialogue and and constructive dialogue to help you understand this and help you craft sensible regulation that meets new technology with new type of regulation not old archaic regulation right and i think the conversation to be had here is like does what are the sec standards right because so uh i think it was in 2018 june of 2018 the sec came out and officially declared that ether is not a security mm-hmm. right and Terra is is trying to build a, a an l1 here right to compete with ethereum and so well, if the sec building, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it has. And so, um, you know, if the SEC comes out and comes down strongly against uh, Terra, they're they're basically king making Ethereum uh, just because just because Ethereum was earlier, right? And this would be uh, kind of the comparison is like if uh, I don't know the the early uh, the early early Google, the search I, I call it Google search it's, now. It's, the it's, early it's, for instance, if you if, if you if you said that Uber was like you know good and Lyft wasn't, so you had to have like a whole yeah or any I don't of think these, that, right. Yeah, I mean, look, the point has always been sufficiently decentralized, and, you know, this is Ethereum benefited because, you know, it was early, it was the first, I guess, in many ways, and um, to do this crowd sale approach, and, um, yeah, we're not going to see the end of this anytime soon. Ho- hopefully, these type of discussions in how in the way that they're manifesting themselves, uh, the outcome of that is, you know, just more clarity. Yeah. The last piece of regulation that I want to touch on uh, is just the Circle Bank uh, banking executive came out and said that uh, the banking rules on stablecoin issuers, issuers could end the industry. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. The proposal is that stablecoin issuers must be insured, um, that they must be insured banks. And mm-hmm. he called that pretty dangerous to the industry. I don't, want, I don't actually think this is, I think this is just a Circle executive trying to defend his business a little bit but i think it's always interesting to look at like what is what are different chokeholds on the industry like what are certain central points of failure um you could almost say that like you know stable coins going after stable coins would be a kind of central point of failure um the industry would end up working out it would just delay success Uh, another point might be uh actually prime trust right prime trust is the back end for a lot of applications in crypto, mm-hmm. if you don't build it yourself, you usually use Prime Trust. Uh, most of the apps that people use are built on Prime Trust these days, and so another central point of failure could be going after Prime Trust. So, like these are just different central points of failure that I think are interesting to call out and for people to understand the risks. Yeah, absolutely. Toppy top signal, my favorite of the week. <laughs> Radio Shack, our mission is to be the first protocol to bridge the gap in mainstream usage of DeFi. Get notified as soon as the Radio Token is launched. Radio Shack token, we buying? I mean, I don't even know what it is. But I will say, like, you know, like, how many lives does this cat have? Because, I mean, they're avoiding... A, if they pull this off, I will... Uh, hats off to them, because... It, okay, we, we laugh at this. Innovators, the Ty Lopez and all this stuff behind it. And it is kind of comical. It's hard not to, like, laugh and just be serious about it. But, you know... Um, I'm very practical, man. If they can get more users into this space and discover crypto, so be it. The Oakham Razor, don't, don't ask how you get there. You know, as long as it's in aligned with your principles and values and they don't do scammy stuff or for outright fraud and they do well for the users. So be it. It's another onboarding funnel. I think the uh, important thing to remember here is that Ty Lopez owns Radio Shack. Um, Correct. That, that perhaps, can we just put a, a picture? Ty Lopez acquired Radio Shack. Correct. Um, Correct. Quite the pivot, I will say. This might be yeah. a HBS case study uh, for all us folks that never want to go to business school. But, you know, this might be a good case study. For yeah, exactly. HBS, Porter Five Forces. <laughs> for, those who don't, for those who don't remember, Ty Lopez. Ty Lopez, Ty Lopez uh, for a couple months, took over all of, uh, all of YouTube <laughs> with the Here in My Garage ads. Here in my new Lamborghini. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. All right. I feel like... Uh, 
I feel like we should move past this one. All right, next thing that's uh, more interesting than Ty Lopez is Munib. Munib Ali, uh, one of my favorite people in all of Twitter. Uh, is he really? In all of Munib. I, I love Munib. Oh, interesting. I, I really love Munib. Munib was the first guest ever on this show, actually, when Makes we sense. launched it. Munib is a very amazing human being. Um, Munib, uh, so Munib is building stacks on on basically smart contracts for, for Bitcoin. He's been kind of coming at the Bitcoin Maxi community recently. Uh, and he had this great tweet the other day, actually yesterday. Bitcoin Maxi paradoxes, three of them. Love decentralization, yet you use centralized exchanges. For example, there's no DEX for BTC. You love free markets, yet you hate venture capitalists, who are inherently free market actors. You love open source, yet you hate an entire revolution of new open source apps. And he continues on in the comments. You love freedom to do what you want, but don't work on non-Bitcoin things. Uh, you love freedom of speech, but you censor devs from Bitcoin podcasts. You love Bitcoin as best money, but only hold as passive asset. You love truth seeking, but create thought bubbles to live in. And it continues on. Um, I give it one year before Mooney moves over to something like Ethereum. I give it one mm-hmm. year here. He, yeah. you, why are you hanging on to Bitcoin, buddy? I love you, no, Mooney. Why are you hanging on to Bitcoin? No, look at me with Taproot and like Sovereign. Like uh, I think a lot of the, you know. I'm not dismissive of Bitcoin building some of these things. I had a really interesting discussion with Muneev on public on Twitter and, and it was it was exactly sort of this. It was like six months ago. I said, Muneev, like I appreciate some innovation in the in the Bitcoin community. Like I'm not I'm not dismissive of that. The problem is he's like, Well, we could build this. I said, Yeah, potentially. But why hasn't it been built? So we're like it's sort of and and I think like you know, this I think it's refreshing to see this, uh, this open dialogue from someone that has been and well-respected, I, th- I think, in the Bitcoin community. Well, and it's rare, increasingly rare to find this type of thinking in, in Bitcoin camp. Uh, and so, you know, I think he's just calling out some, 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 some truth and clearly had a lot of reaction to that. Um, but yeah. In the same way that perhaps some people are being frustrated, like Antonio mentioned this, like he was frustrated at the pace of Ethereum scaling. You know, some people have just been frustrated at, at, at the Bitcoin community. And, and, and you know, again, I, I don't want to come across as someone that doesn't like Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is, there's a lot of, I have a lot of respect for it. I think it serves a very clear focus and purpose. Um, and and that might be okay. And, that, that, and you just stop there. Uh, but the only thing that I've always have failed, it's just very difficult for me to understand is I think that most people come to crypto because they, they had the intellectual curiosity to explore something new because they are, were either burned by an experience that they had or were frustrated with something or just stumbled upon it. And, and at what point do you believe that by shutting yourself out and not entertaining different pieces of technology that are complementary, not competitive, I think, not zero sum to this space? Like Ethereum is complementary to Bitcoin. That's a thought that I've always had. I don't think it's zero sum. Can Ethereum be a store of value? Yes. Does that detract from Bitcoin's value proposition? Maybe. But I don't think it, it obliviates the need for Bitcoin. And so, you know, I've always found it very difficult and perplexing to understand folks like Jack. And we tie out this episode yet again with Jack because I don't understand maximalism. It is, and I will never understand it. You know, I understand people have bags and want to protect their interests. But do you really think like that you by you, it's like, you know, that this world exists out there. You might as well probabilistically say, well, I probably should learn about this, pay attention to it, not dismiss it. Because the minute you dismiss something, you can get blown out. As an investor, 
you're going to get blown out. The minute you shut yourself out to new pieces of technology, especially how early we are, everything that we touched on in this episode suggests and continues to suggest that we are so goddamn early. And for you to shut yourself out, you might be, we still might be in the AOL pets.com phase of this industry, heck, maybe even earlier. And I'm not prepared to come out saying that Ethereum is the winner or any other piece of technology yet. I think we're so early and the best we can do as investors, just community members is align ourselves with communities and pieces of technology that we think, you know, are providing real value and utility to meet a demand out there or we'll build different really cool pieces of technology that will enable new kinds of applications or new kinds of business models that weren't possible before. Whatever you want to call that, Ethereum, Solana, Terra, blockchain, XYZ, I don't care. It's going to come. You just need to keep your eyes out open and your mind open as well and be flexible. Yeah. Bitcoiners are the new gold bugs. It's just it's just a fact. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it just astonishes me. And I think that in 2022, like the Bitcoiners have to make a choice. Like, are you just going to continue going down this rabbit hole, shut out the entire rest of the industry and continue to look like fools? Or are you going to just accept what's happening? Lean in. Let let us help you. Let us lean into the fact that Bitcoin is the store of value assets. It's amazing. Bitcoin's the king, baby. Lean into it. Anyways. Yeah. NLW had this really interesting, uh, really interesting tweet. Pull it up here. I think land being scarce might be the wrong model for the metaverse. It kind of flips a lot of stuff on its head, right? Because you've got a lot of this. You're saying that the reason that this metaverse stuff is, is interesting is because it's this, you've got this scarce asset. The mm-hmm. reason I want to ask you about it, of course, I found you already had a tweet on this. <laughs> Should land in the I metaverse be scarce? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you post a little... Uh, a little poll to your audience, 1,624 mm-hmm. votes later, uh, 46% of people said no, 38% of people said yes, right? Mm-hmm. So 8% more people said no, land should not be scarce. Where did mm-hmm. you fall down on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I then tweeted um, after that um, and candidly before. I can't now, find every tweet, Santiago. I know, I know. I need, well, we need I, like I, a researcher I, or something. <laughs> I do I do think that, uh, yeah, Again, NFTs and, and land, we come from this Bitcoin-centering mentality that scarcity drives value, but I think it's it's utility and abundance that drives value. I think it's utility that drives value, not scarcity in, in stuff like gaming and land. Um, you know, ultimately what you don't want is, I think most people come to realize if you have scarcity in the metaverse, then it becomes super expensive. And then, and then users are going to go elsewhere. New users are going to go elsewhere. And so... Right now, it's a very small subset of users. And so the, you have to think about what does the game look like in two, three, five, ten years? And you, Jason, if you come into this game in three years and it's so expensive to buy an Axie or to buy whatever, Alluvial or what have you, then it's not fun. Most, this is, this is common. If you look at why games don't work is because they are very hard to level up. They're very hard to get initiated. And okay, there are people that can spend money and do that, but it's not representative. And so... Uh, I tweeted, again, just around the discussion on land. I think most projects are, th- you know, land is going to be really interesting in the metaverse. Probably it's crazier than most people think. There's going to be REITs. There's going to be derivatives that you can get exposure to different pieces of metaverse land and indirectly be a really good bet on, on how the metaverse evolves. But most people are not thinking about how the, to develop that land. I was just thinking, like, well, like, a lot of the land in the central land is just sort of, like, barren. Decentral Games is doing some interesting things. I think they built a casino and all this stuff, but, like, Again, you need to focus on utility. With most of the land's empty, okay, yeah, sure, fine. You have a plot of land next to Snoop Dogg. And what are you going to build? 
and how cohesive is this metaverse going to be? So, you know, you, I think most teams will be well served. My tweet was, we need to study urban development in the real world to understand how we, learnings of how we should think about the metaverse. You know, should there be zoning? Should, you know, there should be residential pieces. There should be, cons- you know, co- commercial pieces of parts of the land. Not if, otherwise, just too, there's a mumbo jumbo. And so, like, how are things going to work? Uh, billboards and tax taxation. There's this idea that people hoarding. And so, like, there's interesting economic theories around, like, well, people shouldn't hoard, right? Because, you know, it, it, cities like New York and Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, are, are, are super expensive. And London is super expensive. And they're super concentrated with a set of, like, people that are sniping these pieces of land and not doing anything with them. And so, ultimately, I think the, the, the North Star is utility. And we should focus on, and for that reason, I think land should probably not be scarce in the metaverse. Uh, and you should just focus on inc- like building a lot of utility. And I think that to me reads like it should be probably abundant to support billions and billions of users. I have very strong conviction on what I think will happen, which is, I think I agree with you if I understand your thesis, the metaverse land will not be scarce. There'll be an unlimited amount of land in the metaverse unlimited mm-hmm. amount of land in the same way that there's an unlimited amount of land actually in the in the world right it's just that there, there really is there's an unlimited amount of land in the world We're, we have there's so much of this world that we haven't put houses on right go to yeah. drive drive through the u.s drive from i used to drive every year from uh from to, to and from college right from san francisco to atlanta back and forth did it like 10 different times go through the middle of the u.s Unlimited amount of land in the in the middle of the U.S. I can I can assure you, nobody wants to live there though because people want to live in the cities because of proximity. So what the yeah. metaverse is going to look like? There's an unlimited amount of land. Most people don't care about most of that land though. If you know, I don't know, Obama well, what, or Novogratz or Snoop Dogg goes and puts a house down, right, right. that land around it becomes much more valuable, and that's where yeah, the valuable yeah, land yeah. is going to be. I, I agree with you that the human den- that the, the Ultimately, we need to, we want to be around people, right? We're social beings, and that is not going to not be true in the metaverse. The problem, though, is, or the, the thing I'll just leave you with is, how does that manifest itself in a world where you can teleport yourself to any piece of land super quickly, in seconds? The speed of light, you can go anywhere. And so, so yeah, you could be living in the, in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, and in a click of a button, you go to New York. Yeah, but nobody nobody can see your house if you live in the middle of Arkansas, right? Correct, it's, a, it's about showing your off, right? Well it's about taken, walking down is, the yeah, street yeah. and saying, oh my God, there's Snoop Dogg's house and I live next to Snoop Dogg. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, so, so I think like we're both saying the exact same thing. Land is probably going to be abundant and infinite. But, but of course, there will be high-density places that people congregate in and, and have activities. And again, we should... It, Insofar as there is utility in the main square, Decentraland or Illuvium or whatever, then that's where you probably want to have a piece of land, right? Because yeah. and by the way, this is going to look very similar to what media, like what's happened with like everyone launching their own Substack, is where you mm-hmm. have a bunch of different people instead of like following five different media companies, you follow three hundred different media companies, and the media companies right, are really right. just mostly individuals, right? Maybe who write like on their own Substack. Uh, you mean similar, like, or, or similar subscribe to like podcasts, like Empire, you know. Yeah, shout out, subscribe right now. Pause it, subscribe. I love how spammy like some of these some of these YouTube videos are like <laughs> smash the like button right now. Smash the like. <laughs> <laughs>
Like, smash the it, like, it, baby. We need Let's like a big pop up to show up on the YouTube. Yeah, yeah, huge red pop right now. Seeing like smash like button right now. Subscribe, right, please. You can go unsubscribe, no, Santiago, gents. We're not desperate. Hopefully, at minimum, people tell me it's like, oh, listen to your podcast. Like, oh, great. Did I put you to sleep? It's like, no. Okay, great. Mission accomplished. Yeah, good. Last last note on the scarce land is what's going to happen is instead of five big cities, like instead of New York, Chicago, mm-hmm. San Francisco, LA, uh, Atlanta, you're going to have thousands of cities. And it's celebrities will come in, right? Like Jake Paul is going to pop up his house in the middle of Arkansas and all of his fans are going to come build cities around it. Unlike uh, just going to like New York, right? And so like Snoop Dogg is going to put his thing down. Snoop Dogg fans are going to go there. But then someone that like they like more than Snoop Dogg, right? Maybe like I'm a huge Usher fan. I don't know why Usher came to mind. And Usher is going to pop his house down in like the middle of the metaverse. And, and Usher fans are going to come over. So yeah. I agree. All right. Enough about scarce land. Uh, the last thing I want to call out here is just a little bit of alpha. I really liked this guy, Darren. He, uh, he's got this great telegram group, actually, the Daily Ape, where he aggregates a lot of info at the end of every day. Um, yeah, shout out to the Daily Ape. Fantastic piece of news. Uh, this yeah. is one of the, the few things that I check religiously every day. Yeah, me too, actually. Me too. Love the Daily Ape. Shout out, Darren. Um, pretty insane how much some of the DeFi 1.0 tokens are down. Oh, my God. Cream down 92%. You've got... Sushi is down 77, 77%, right? Ave down 73%. Uh, one inch down 70%. Um, is should alpha, I baby. My, should I lick, lick my wounds now or what's the point of this, Jason? <laughs> the point of this is that the point of this is, you know what people are underestimating right now is DeFi 1.0. There's so much attention pulled into metaverse, gaming, NFTs. You know what I'm still excited about? Call me a lame old school Guy here, I'm excited about DeFi 1.0. I know people are looking at DeFi 2.0 gaming. Mm-hmm. DeFi 1.0, man, that is. Uh, I was thinking exactly I, about this going to bed last night, and I tweeted. So I always tweet like, uh, "Why am I there at the gym?" Or story like, of Santiago, yeah. <laughs> and I said, I was just thinking about this, which is there's no, and I'll say there's no point in trying to classify it. crypto market as bull or bear. You know what I mean? Like everyone's like talking, are we in a bull market? Are we in a bear market? I'm like, there are pockets of crypto that are in bubblish territory, and there are others that are in distress levels. And I said, focus on the underlying quality of assets, develop a beyond price or on the team or the value of that. And say, great asset. So, so the, this idea, it's like Howard Marks from Oak Creek, great, one of the best investors. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, great assets can make for terrible investments because they're priced to perfection. The same way that a terrible asset can make for a fantastic investment because it's mm-hmm. left for dead and you pick it up at pennies on the dollar. And so... To me, it's always like crypto's always been this market, interestingly, which narratives get pushed to extremes. We talk about narratives all the time in this episode. And you always kind of get a sense of like, you never want to be catching the tail end of that, right? Um, whether it's NFTs right now, it's a, they're all the buzz, all the rage, you know? Um, whereas, you know, I think you instead want to be focusing on the things that are quietly building and working in the background and, and not getting much love. And I'll tell you, in my estimation, things like DeFi, Punks maybe right now are not getting any love. None of this is financial advice. But I will say, it's just that is, I think, if I were to distill the number one thing, when I, for instance, that I, when I talk to people, it's like, you know, we, we go, you go to a committee, for instance, and you talk about, oh, this, or you talk to your parents or you talk to people about stuff, and they're like so excited and get a lot of conviction on, on a particular investment opportunity. And you're like, yeah, fine. Like, I'm not, I don't disagree with you. But what do you know that the rest of the market doesn't know? And what do you know that is not being, that is not already priced in? 
And I think ultimately people just make this mistake that they fall, they obsess and they fall in love with stuff. I'm like, listen, I don't disagree with you. Pep, you know, Apple's a great company. Tesla, great. Okay, you like the cars. I don't, but fine. Great company. But like, what does evaluation, what does the price today reflect? And the expectation, because everything is a discounted, you know, discount calculus or whatever, a discount to whatever you feel is going to happen in the future. And and look, I think most assets, so there a lot of them are, are can be great, but they're just priced to perfection. And so it leaves this idea of margin of safety, which is, you know, something that's super interesting um, and should be properly understood. And you always need to wonder what's being priced in here because they're, all, you know, fine, I'm not disagreeing with you. Some of these projects, fantastic, super exciting, super sexy, whatever. But it leaves practically zero margin of error. And I never want to be holding that because I think yeah. invariably there always are hiccups. There always are issues. And so I want to be buying stuff that most people like. Maybe it's DeFi right now. That most people are like, oh, this shit's never going to work. It's done. We don't yeah. care about it. It's like, fine. Yeah, okay. I'll bet against that all day long. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Let's get into the best part of the episode. TV yes, show sir. for you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas if you celebrate it. I've got a TV show yeah. for you for the holidays for all mankind. You will love it. Uh, I think okay. you and me, both big history nerds, for all mankind, basically explores the possibilities that might exist if the global space race from the '60s had actually continued, and where humanity would be here, where humanity would be if the space race had actually continued. Right? If there was this big communist threat still, uh, and it didn't actually end, but like if we were still fighting the commies. And, you know, you had the cosmonauts and the astronauts and we were racing to space and then we get to space, we land on the moon and what actually happens. So for all mankind, okay. phenomenal show. It, where, where can someone find it? Uh, it is on Apple TV. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, very good. We'll Check definitely it link it in the show. This is great, man. I was actually looking for, you know, the bane of my existence is like in the spare moments that I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch something it's sort of this rabbit hole, right? That everyone gets. It's like you end up scrolling through Netflix and then you switch to Amazon or Apple TV. And then you're like, all right, I just spent 20 minutes. I'm just going to like go to bed now. Or, or as always, you just watch Harry Potter and it, or Star Wars or James Bond. <laughs> you love Those your three. Harry Potter. You love well, your Harry Most Potter. importantly, Harry Potter. Most importantly, Harry yeah. Potter. And this is the time. This is, I will say, I will watch yours, Jason. But I will say, you know, if you're, if you don't like this, the best alternative and the, the 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 guarantee, especially this time of year, is watch Harry Potter. Always, oh, it's always Harry Potter forever for sure. Harry yeah. Potter season, always. Yeah. All right, guys. If you guys made it to the end of the episode, uh, first things first, go buy a ticket to Permissionless. Santiago and I are going to be hanging out in Palm Beach. What's not to like about Palm Beach? May seventeenth through nineteenth. Go to the Blockworks website. You'll see it there. Second thing, <laughs> smash the subscribe. Santiago is going to kick me off the show if I say that again, but Stop. go hit that subscribe. <laughs> um, yeah. no, I'm, just, I'm kidding. But actually, uh, we have some really good episodes coming up. We've got Antonio Juliano uh, or Juliano. I'm not sure how you pronounce it from DYDX. Mm -hmm. We have Kyle and Tushar from Multicoin after that. We've got Gabby from YGG. Uh, Santiago, I haven't told you yet, but I uh, just got confirmations from Rob Leshner over at Compound. Also, yeah. Arthur from Defiance Capital. Also, right. Arthur from... Uh, Amy Wu from Lightspeed, also Meltem coming on the show. So we've got some amazing episodes. Boom, boom, boom. Nice. You should subscribe what, to the show. What, well, my friend, this has been great. I'm I'm very happy to come on as a, as a co-host. It's been a true pleasure. I can't wait for more episodes next year. I think we got a stack lineup. Um, happy holidays um, to you, to everyone listening. 
uh, and hopefully you get some enjoy some quality time with friends and family reflect on the year i know what you'll be doing right before new year's um and so maybe you can tell us a little more about that ritual next time and yeah you know it's been a great year um thank you for everyone uh and uh yeah uh, we will be working through the holidays to be fair jason because we yes. don't have anything better to do but we'll be interviewing and we'll we will have more weekly roundups in case you're get tired of the turkey get tired of friends and family or fireplaces you can always tune in to our podcast and we'll be here exactly exactly all right everyone thanks for a great year we will uh see you soon thanks for listening all right my friend have a good one take care